You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Junaid Kabani, who is running an open source Shopify app that is focused on dropshipping order fulfillment. His app was created with Koa, which is a web framework written in Node. Junaid, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? So do you want to start off by introducing yourself a little bit and uh, letting people know a bit more about the app that we're going to be talking about today? So I've been in the e-commerce industry for about 10 years now. And basically, I've grown this thing. And I used to use like Zapier and Google Sheets to manage all these things. But as I started to grow more and more, I decided to learn how to code and build like this application that would help me automate it more and more. Um, so my background is mainly in e-commerce and recently programming within the past year um, as I've worked to build this application. Okay, so were you running like a, like a drop shipping app of your own or a store of your own? Uh, well, so it was a number of things that we used to do. Um, I used to have a warehouse and we used to drop ship some items, but we used to also hold inventory. But we realized that our rent was $1,700 a month and a lot of our suppliers actually already had um, economies of scale. So they were getting actually cheaper shipping rates than we can get. So it was just easier to push our orders to them, but also hold some of the inventory depending on which items were selling the most. So the reason we use Zapier and Google Sheets was to manage all of this because some items were drop shipped, some items we were holding, um, some orders we were trying to push directly to our suppliers, but it's a very sort of moving operations. Managing all of that from, you know, just Zapier and Google Sheets was not really, I guess, sustainable. A lot of things would fall through the cracks. Customer service was a little slow. And eventually I just realized that Zapier was just interacting with Shopify's APIs and it would be better just to interact with them directly. Um, Shopify has extensive API documentation to do all of that and build something like this. So I just went ahead and, you know, learned React and tried to just build something that would help me make it easier to scale. If I launch more and more shops, add more products, I won't have to go through all those hoops. It would all be done through our dashboard. So that was right. basically how it started, uh, just as a way to scale efficiently. Um, as far as customer service is concerned, as far as adding more products, all of those things in one go. Do you just want to give like a 30 second rundown on what drop shipping is? Because Sometimes I'll go to YouTube and you see some titles where it's like, stay at home, earn $37,000 a month dropshipping. Can you just explain a little bit more about how that works? So I, I think those are a lot of get rich quick schemes. So just like anything that's, I guess, hitting the mainstream, there's, there's going to be people that use it to build their business. And then there's going to be some people trying to use it just to get rich quick. But I think dropshipping is a great way to test items before you start holding the inventory because you don't know how much are going to sell if it's really going to be a running product because what most people don't realize for e-commerce at least a lot of money is tied up into inventory so if you get maybe 200 300 orders a month you're going to have at least i want to say five to six k worth of inventory that's just sitting there and if that somehow doesn't sell then you're just stuck with that that's a loss you're going to have to take so I think dropshipping is a great way to alleviate that stress, but it's not sustainable in the long run because the way to sustain an e-commerce business is to build a brand, you know, essentially build value for the customer. And dropshipping in itself is not valuable to the customer because essentially you're just pushing their order to your supplier. But dropshipping allows you to find out which products sell and then maybe private label that and essentially start holding inventory or use some sort of like fulfillment as a service, like ShipBob, ShipMonk, Deliver. There's many of them out there. Shopify itself is working on a fulfillment service. And all these things are trying to rival, you know, Amazon's Fulfilled by Amazon service. So all of these things are coming to sellers. But the whole point of OpenShip is to allow that transition smoothly. So you can drop ship some items, but when you decide to hold inventory, it's all going to be managed to the same dashboard. So let's say that you are pushing some of your orders to your supplier. And once you start selling a lot of it, you can actually buy 100 or 200 units 
and hold it in a shipbob warehouse and use that to fulfill your orders until you maybe run out. You can automate, you know, refilling that inventory. But all of that can be done through our dashboard. Um, it allows that transition smoothly because a lot of people will drop ship, but they'll be stuck in that business model. They won't be able to basically deviate from that by holding inventory and going further. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So in, in a way, it's almost like if you were to create your own SaaS app, it's like you're almost getting like pre-sales before you would even develop it, whereas dropshipping is almost like a test grounds to see if a product is worth making, something like that. Exactly. Like that. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the application itself. So are you the only developer on this project? So I did decide to actually hire someone, hire like a small developer to help me through if I get stuck or anything of that sort. Um, I did... I did used to go on Stack Overflow, Reddit, um, Spectrum, and, you know, try to ask questions if I'm stuck. Because I feel like I am relatively new. I've only learned how to code maybe like a year ago. And I didn't have much success through Stack Overflow or anything like that. And so I just decided to pay a developer to help me if I get stuck on something or if I can't figure out something. But honestly, it's been a great experience. I, I think I've only paid that person like maybe... 500 to a thousand dollars but the knowledge that i've learned from them directly is i feel like more valuable than i would have gotten from stack overflow or any of those other forms online so so far it's only me developing it but if i'm stuck he does come in and help me right so it's more of like the developer as like an insurance policy exactly. type of deal yeah right? exactly yeah way way more friendly than a stack overflow question getting locked in 30 seconds because it was redundant yeah that's actually happened to me so i think that's what really pushed me to just be like hey you know paying someone is the biggest incentive and you mm -hmm. know like they're going to be more helpful that way right so you mentioned that your app uh it was built with koa uh, do you want to get a little bit into why you chose that web framework and why you chose node in the first place definitely so Shopify has a bunch of pre-built packages for Koa. They used to use Express, but I think they've moved to Koa now because I think it's made by the Express team as well, but it's a lot more lightweight. And I mean, that's really the main reason we're using Koa, just to use those packages, such as uh, I think they have a Shopify off package for Koa that allows people to easily install the app, uh, handle HMAC verification and all those things. And they also allow you to actually mount their proxy, their GraphQL API proxy. Uh, that way you can hit your endpoint instead of having to go directly to Shopify every time. So that was mainly the main reason to have already these pre-built middleware packages for Koa. And so we're just using that for now. But if I were to deviate from that, maybe build my own middleware, I might go to Micro. I feel like that's an up and coming framework for Node but we're still on call for now. Right. And when you mentioned like the auth middleware and stuff like that, are these like officially supported by Shopify? So if you want to go ahead and find that, it's actually going to, it's, they made a bunch of these packages. It's through the Shopify quilt. If you just Google that, the GitHub repository should come up, but they have a bunch. I think they've added a lot more now, you know, to handle ping, to handle analytics, but they've essentially open source all of these COA middleware packages to allow developers to build off that. Okay. Yeah, I'll drop a couple of links in the show notes to that. Yeah, Shopify apps are pretty cool because like I remember, I don't know how many years ago it's been now, five, six, seven years. Uh, I did develop a Shopify app once before, but it was using um, Ruby on Rails to, to write the app itself. But yeah, their API and stuff has been fantastic. Definitely. Yeah, I think Ruby on Rails is how they were handling um, app development before. But I think they've actually released a lot of tutorials on how to make apps using um, Next.js. That's what we've built it on. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they really are switching to a full JavaScript stack as far as apps are going. But yeah, I think Ruby on Rails was the way they were doing it before. So is your application just, uh, is it like a monolithic application or, or did you break it up into microservices? So right now we have a server and a client. So the server is just a, you know, Apollo server and we use Prisma in as our database and I guess CMS, but it's only split into those parts. It's not really any sort of monorepo or anything like that, but I'm definitely open to doing something like that in the future. 
wait, you said it's not a monorepo, meaning each of those are on in its own separate yes. repo? Mm-hmm. How has that been so far, trying to manage most both of those? It's been relatively easy, I feel like. Um, I haven't hit a lot of hiccups, but I know there's Lerna out there. That's definitely something I'm trying to look into in the future. But what what would you say are some of the benefits to using a mono repo instead of having two separate repos? Uh, I don't know. It really depends on like the team size and the developer in general. Like me personally, I'm a little bit more comfortable just working with uh, one repo because now it's like, well, if I just you know if I want to get this application up and running. All I really have to do is clone that one repo, follow the build steps for it. In my case, I use Docker, so it's it's basically just doing like a Docker compose up. And then it's like, yeah, I'm ready to hack away on the code base. Uh, once you start jumping around to multiple repos, it, you know, it maybe get it gets a little bit more complicated because now it's like, you know, you have to clone multiple repos and then kind of like glue them together in such a way where you can run them. Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm definitely going to look into that. That seems like maybe as we get or as we grow our team, um, that may be something we should look into or make it easier for people to just Docker, make like a Docker file or a Docker compose and they have the whole application running. But for now, we've only open sourced the front end uh, because the back end has actually a lot of functions that we use internally uh, to manage my e-commerce shops. So once that's cleaned up, I think Monorepo might be a better way to go. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, it's one of those things where you can just play around with it and then you know, you can compare both of them once you have experience with both and see which one works best. So my expertise is not in like the Node universe. So I, I, I'm assuming here it's like some API backend for your app and then your front end is, is written with what? Our front end is written in React. And Next.js is just a React framework that allows server-side rendering. But using the COA packages that Shopify has, um, just through the Next.js app, we can allow people to add their shops. You can allow people to mount that proxy for that GraphQL. Um, we also have a GraphQL playground. So the application honestly was built for internal use mainly just because there's a lot of mini applications that I make to make my job easier, such as opening returns, uh, fetching tracking very quickly instead of having to click through, you know, the order going to exactly all those things. So using the GraphQL proxy, we can essentially hit that endpoint and perform any sort of query or mutation to allow automations, essentially. Okay. So when it comes to the front end, are you using any type of uh, like WebSockets to communicate uh, some information back to your customers? Uh, unfortunately, I've not looked into WebSockets yet. I feel like we are going to be building a messaging system as far as you know buyer and seller so you can communicate with a seller that you've drop shipped from or a seller you're buying bulk inventory from so i feel like something if we incorporate something like that then we'd probably use like socket.io to allow those you know messaging things but as far as now we're not using web sockets okay maybe it would be easier also if you can just kind of like walk us through like what does it look like like let's say that i sign up for your service like what what do i need to do to like integrate this with my store and like how does your app you know how do all the pieces kind of come together so let's say that you get an order on your shopify shop so you would sign up for an account on our website then you'd add your shop which is simply a shopify app once that shop is added you can actually add those orders to our pending tab and then fulfill those orders using drop shipping systems like aliexpress amazon but you could also use our marketplace that's our other way of monetization we want to allow users to source from other users bulk buy from other users private label items from other users then we also plan to integrate with a bunch of other marketplaces where you can source inventory from uh you can also like on our cus on my custom fork of this application i've actually integrated with a bunch of our suppliers um, so I can access their inventory and build a cart and a checkout. And so going back to the example, let's say that you get an order, you've already signed up for our application, you've added your shop, you add that order to the pending tab, you can create multiple carts for that order and then place that order using our dashboard. And so that order would get pushed to the supplier shop or Amazon or AliExpress and once that entity fulfills the order, that tracking will get uploaded directly on your shop. And we also plan to 
build out like returns. That's like another thing that's very cumbersome for people that drop ship or people that hold inventory or push orders directly to suppliers because returns can be a little tricky um, depending on you know how the order was fulfilled. If the order was fulfilled using a custom 3PL solution, then returns are different versus if it's pushed directly to your supplier. Your supplier might not even have a return system. So integrating with all those things I think is essential, but that's the general gist of it. So you got your shop, you can push all the orders to OpenShip, or you can manually add each order you want to fulfill. Then you can create carts depending on how you want to fulfill that order. And once that order ships, that tracking gets uploaded and that's the general gist of it. From the end customer's perspective, like the person purchasing the item, all of that, they wouldn't do anything different, right? They would just add the item to the cart, check out billing details, and just wait, I guess, exactly. for the order? So it wouldn't affect your end customer at all, but it would allow you to essentially create carts for that order. So let's say that you, let's say I have a customer and you are my supplier and you have a Shopify shop. So what will happen is a customer will create an order on my shop, then I would go ahead and use OpenShip to create a cart and a checkout on your shop. And once that ships, we use webhooks to fulfill the order in my shop, and then the customer will get that email. And then if they wanna return it, we're trying to automate that as well, that essentially we would open an order return on your system, or even allow the customer to open it on your system and handle returns that way. Oh, okay. You also, you mentioned the marketplace before. Are, are you talking like building your own platform where other people can go on there and provide items to the B drop Exactly. Ships? So that's, so we actually have two ways of monetization. One is the software as a service. So you could pay a monthly fee and use the platform. There's no obligation to use a marketplace at all. But since we are open source, you can always just host your own instance and not have to pay us at all. But the marketplace, I feel like, is our main monetization. So, yes, yeah, so once, let's say that you use OpenShip to build your operations on there, you can easily list your items on our marketplace. And the inventory will be synced through Shopify, and you can allow other users to tap into your inventory stores. So, as far as e-commerce is concerned, this is very powerful because what a lot of people don't understand is, let's say that you sell iPhone cables on your website and you might be selling 50 a month and you're using OpenShip to handle your operations. So I might reach out to you and say, hey, list your item on our marketplace and I'll allow other people to tap into your inventory. And it's you know simple to do. We have an industry low seller fee of 4%. Um, Amazon charges 15%, eBay is 10%. So it's very, very low because we're simply tapping into Shopify. We're using your existing system. So the overhead for us is very low. And so they would essentially list that item. So let's say that you sell 10 or 20 through our marketplace. Now you're selling 70 a month. And so you're going to be able to go back to your supplier and negotiate a lower price. And that way you might be able to make more on the 50 that you sell on your website directly. And we're also going to be building out private labeling. So let's say someone is tapping into your inventory of iPhone chargers and they decide, hey, this is great. I want to put my logo on this. I want to buy 100 of them. I want to buy 200 of them. That will all be possible through the marketplace. So they'll be able to buy that 100, hold it in a you know, ship bob or ship monk or some sort of fulfillment as a service or even a custom 3PL solution. And then they'll be able to use their inventory to fulfill those orders. But now you just got a bulk order of 100 or 200 of these chargers. So we're trying to build out that a B2B marketplace, essentially, with a really low seller fee. Okay. And for that marketplace aspect of it, it's still the same co-es setup there as well? Uh, so the marketplace itself is a Shopify shop. So the market, so it works all the same. So if you want to push your orders directly to a supplier or our marketplace, our APIs don't change at all because we're simply interacting with Shopify's API for our personal marketplace shop, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned that um, that your overhead is, is kind of low. So what type of infrastructure is your app running on? So right now we have only five daily active users. And so we're simply running it on a digital ocean droplet. I don't know if you've ever heard of Caprover. 
is kind of like a Heroku that you can host yourself um, on DigitalOcean and you can essentially spin up any Docker file and run that app on CapRover. And so internally we have two DigitalOcean droplets. One is running Prisma with a MySQL database and the other is running our server and client. We tried having all three in one DigitalOcean droplet um, but it would crash or there'd be a lot of things going wrong. So we decided to split them up. Um, that way, if Prisma crashes or our server crashes or anything like that, not everything is affected. Right. Now, those crashes, when you had it on the three-for-one deal, was it just due to like the memory of the server being saturated or was it something else? Um, I'm honestly not sure. I feel like it may have been something to do with CapRover. Um, I know Prisma does a lot of things internally as well. So... I wasn't able to figure out what the problem was, but just splitting them up, I think really helped. And that way, if Prisma is holding our database and doing all these things, we can always upgrade that droplet to like a $30 droplet or a $50 droplet and have our next JS and server, you know, stay on that other droplet. So I honestly don't know what the issue was, but as soon as we split them, the issues went away. Okay. That's always <laughs> good at the end. The issues went away. <laughs> So do you want to give like the TLDR on what Prisma even is? Definitely. So it, it's an open source CMS for any database. So you, I think a lot of people or a lot of big corporations switch between like Postgres and MySQL depending on, you know, how they go about. So it allows you to switch between those things simply, but it simply gives you a GraphQL endpoint for that database and allows you to create schemas it's actually very, very extensive, but it's very powerful, especially for like a backend system that can scale. Um, I honestly wouldn't do it justice going into in depth of all that it does, but I definitely check out their website. They allow you to, you know, create a schema for your database, uh, essentially change that schema without, you know, having to reset the database and do all those things. But it's definitely streamlined my developing skills as far as backend goes. Interesting. Yeah, I've never used that before, but it almost sounds like it's something that sits in between your application and your database and becomes like, a, what, is there like a web interface then to interact with your database to create these schemas and whatever well, else? The schemas are uh, done through um, a file that you have to, yeah, it's, it's kind of complex, but think of it this way. So you have a database and you write your schema in a data model um, and then it applies that to the database and then it exposes a GraphQL endpoint. But that GraphQL endpoint exposes everything. So let's say that you have users, someone can hit that endpoint and delete any users. So on top of Prisma, you have some sort of Apollo server. There's another one called GraphQL Yoga. That's something Prisma itself developed, but that sits on top of Prisma. So that allows you to interact with Prisma without giving all access to the user. So let's say that you have Apollo server. So the client will interact with Apollo server and Apollo server will interact with Prisma directly for your database. So the Apollo server essentially makes sure that not anyone can go in and see the passwords, not anyone can go in and delete everything because Prisma allows read and write for everything. But we restrict it to only our Apollo server can make changes to it. And in Apollo server, we you know force users to have a JWT, make sure that they're authenticated, we can even expose some things that they might not have to be signed in for. But yeah, that's basically the gist of it. Hmm. Yeah, many, many different terms in that last minute. So the Apollo server, that's also something I haven't really used because I'm not so much into uh, the Node community. Is that like some web server of some sort or something uh, else? It's essentially a GraphQL server. So it's kind of difficult to explain, but um, are, you, are you familiar with GraphQL? A little bit. Yeah. So basically, yes, it, it's kind of like your backend server. So it kind of replaces like a REST. I know a lot of people used to use like REST, um, but GraphQL allows you to like choose what you want to get returned and all those things. But there's still a big debate that REST still might be better. But a Paul server just allows you to interact with your database. And Prisma is on top of your database. So if you look at the layers, there's like, your database, if it's like MySQL. On top of that is Prisma that allows you to change the schema. It gives you a UI to look at your database directly, something like um, Mongo Atlas, but Prisma itself is giving you access to those things. 
Then there's a Apollo server that interacts with Prisma and allows read and write through your database and you can restrict those things. And then on top of that is our client. So our client interacts with the Apollo server, Apollo server interacts with Prisma and Prisma interacts with your database. Okay. Yeah, that is very clear now. Although, so do you not run a regular, like a node server or no? I think Prisma itself is, um, yeah. it may be a node server. I know it's built using Scala, but I'm not too familiar with how all those things work. Um, but okay, it makes sense now though. Like, so Apollo is running on some type of port, let's say, say 8,000 or something like that. And then Prisma is running on its own port, 8001, we'll say. And then it's like your database is running. Like these are all separate services exactly. that run. So I think Apollo itself, um, you can have Apollo in any sort of server. So Apollo can be Express Server. Uh, they have a micro server. They have Koa. Um, I think they have Happy. Um, they have all those new things. But Apollo Server just exposes a GraphQL endpoint for your client, if that makes sense. So okay. like there's actually two GraphQL servers in this stack. Like Prisma itself exposes a GraphQL that only interacts with Apollo. And then Apollo exposes a GraphQL endpoint that only allows interaction with your client. Yeah, no, that makes total sense now. Now, you mentioned only having like a few active users, but uh, are you doing some type of like database multi-tenancy to break them up? Like how do you differentiate to make sure customer A can never, ever, ever see customer B stuff? So that's exactly what Apollo server does. So when you log on, it sends a specific uh, JWT to Apollo server, and that makes sure that you can only see your data. Um, and I think it's like a very common way to do things as far as authentication goes, but that's basically how it's done. They, they won't ever be able to see any of the other users' data because they can't interact with Prisma directly. Only our server can. And our server restricts and makes people log on to access their orders or any of the things that are on our system and as far as our system our system actually doesn't expose doesn't even have anything um, confidential because we simply interact with shopify's api so we don't keep your orders once an order like if you go through that process and let's say that you fulfill an order using openship once that order ships we delete it we have we do not keep any trace of that order and anything that we've done to the order we push that information back to shopify so Shopify allows you like you allows apps to add meta fields and custom fields and things like that. So all the things that we do, we add to Shopify. So if you ever decide not to use OpenShift, that information will always be there on your Shopify shop. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. That's so like cool. we don't we don't want to hold anything like that. And as far as um, adding, so Shopify once you add an app, they send us a access token um, and like the Shopify's app, the shop's name. And so even those things, if you ever delete our app from your shop, we lose complete access. So Shopify has that on lock. So all those things are pretty, you know, set in stone. There's not any, you know, we don't expose any user's data to anyone else because we simply just tap into their Shopify API. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Shopify has done a really good job with their API in terms of like authorization yeah, stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, using OAuth and all those things. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple of different services running. You mentioned like the Apollo and Prisma and your database. Uh, are you running anything else like Nginx in front of the web server or so no? So CapRover actually takes care of all of that. Um, I think that's why it's very, very easy to use. They handle HTTPS. Um, so all those things internally, I've never even had to look into. So I think CapRover does a really good job of handling all those things. And I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's really, really great. I, I always tell people about it, you know, if they want to host anything. I think one of the main barriers of hosting a Docker file or Docker image is, you know, creating that database or doing all those things. But you can simply put in a Docker file and it'll create the database. It'll create all those things for you. But as far as scaling, I think that's when it gets a little trickier because I don't think we'll be able to handle that, but we'll see as we go on. Yeah, I have not heard of that before, but you mentioned that it requires a Docker file or maybe some other Docker-related files, like a Docker Compose file or something, for it to work. But you mentioned that your app is not inside of Docker, so how do you how do you connect the two? Our whole system is not in a Docker file for now, but Prisma itself 
you know, provides a Docker file and then you can choose if you want a Postgres database or MySQL. So I, I use that Docker file to host it on CapRover. Um, but that was the only thing per se. But another system we're running on there is Sentry. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it allows you to find yep. errors on your applications. So that's also something that you can host on CapRover. Um, and, you know, it'll spin up your own database. It'll handle all those things for you. But again, I feel like it might be pushing it to the limit as we scale because in the end, it only is a $20 droplet. So, you know, I feel like there's going to be some obstacles down the road. But yeah, so in the end, you just, they actually have turned a lot of the Docker files into one-click apps. So once you install CapRover on your DigitalOcean server or droplet, uh, you can essentially click on all these one-click apps that they have. And that allows you to essentially have that app up and running in no time. So Sentry was one of those apps. And they take the Docker file and they change some things to make it compatible with that. Okay. So how do you then run this application in development? Do you still use um, the CapRover in development as well no, or no? CapRover is only for production. Um, for develop for developmental, I just run, run it locally. I don't really um, use Sentry in development but just the Next.js app and the Apollo server. So I just run them normally. And the way they're pushing to CapRover is you can add a repo. And so once a new commit is sent, it automatically starts building it and deploying it. So it's very, very convenient for me at least because I just have to push the updates or whatever I do and it automatically gets deployed. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about your deploy process from start to finish. But um, before we get into that one, uh, one last question for you is, does your app depend on any other SaaS tools? Like you mentioned Sentry, but um, what about like transactional emails and maybe some other stuff? So transactional emails, uh, we use uh, Postmark, I believe. Um, but again, it's we're still on the free tiers for all these things because we're still at a very low active user. So those things free tiers are very good but other than that we use zapier for some things just if i don't want to code something or if it's something really small uh zapier is i think 10 20 dollars a month so that's probably the only other thing i use for now but i always try to look for open source solutions if there's a paid solution or something i can host on CapRover, or if there is a docker file available i'll always go for the free solution at least for now right so you mentioned uh, Zapier a couple of times. I'm not sure if all listeners are going to know what that is. Do you want to give like a like the 15 second rundown of, of what that helps yeah, you? Yeah, definitely. I feel like most people know what if this then that is. Um, IFTTT. So it's essentially that, but for businesses, and it allows you to interact with all these software as a services APIs, and even past that, like Gmail, Excel, Google Sheets, all those things. So you essentially create triggers and you can allow those triggers to do different things. So let's say that you create a trigger in Zapier for MailChimp that, hey, once I, if, once I get an email that wants to subscribe to our newsletter, I want that email sent to the CRM or whatever you want to connect things with. So it allows you to create these workflows um, depending on different triggers, creating different things. So how I used to use it internally for Shopify was... Um, before I created OpenShift was when an order came in, that webhook would create an order on Google Sheets. And then from Google Sheets, I'd have an app script running depending on, you know, exactly what the item that sold was that, hey, we're holding this item. This item we're drop shipping. This item we're sending directly to our supplier shop. So that Google app script would simply course through that Google Sheet and fulfill all those orders. But Zapier would get those orders on there. Yeah, so it's like basically a way to glue together two or more different independent SaaS tools or, you know, web applications without having to really write too much to get exactly. that to work. Yeah, and it gives you a really beautiful interface. Uh, it's essentially interacting with those APIs directly, but it just gives you like a nice way to, you know, write triggers, do different actions. So, yeah, I think you put it perfectly better than I did at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So you mentioned uh, CapRover takes care of SSL. Uh, does that use like Let's Encrypt under the hood or something uh, yeah, else? Yeah, I think it uses Let's Encrypt under the hood. Cool. And then when it comes to uh, that DigitalOcean server, is that something where you have to install a whole bunch of stuff manually before CapRover works? Or 
you mentioned is it is it a one-click installer straight from do to get it to get it up uh, I forgot. yeah so they used to have all these instructions that you would have to do but i think they've partnered with digital ocean to have a them as a one-click app on their system and then internally they have all these other one-click apps that you can add unlimited of like sentry is one of them mongodb all those things are one-click apps within caprover but caprover itself is a one-click app on the digital ocean marketplace so the first server I set up, I had to manually do all these things. But then the second one, I was surprised to find out that they had automated all this. And so I just went in and clicked what type of, I guess, system I want to run on the droplet. And Caprover was one of the first options. Right. As a pre-built, ready-to-go image, like a one-click exactly. installer. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So DO is pretty nice. Like I like I use them as well for many, many different things. Uh, are you taking advantage of uh, like their alerting systems and other stuff like that? I don't know if that would work with Caprover directly. Just because DigitalOcean might think everything is running smoothly, whereas internally in Caprover, some things might not be working. So um, I haven't looked into that personally. But I'm also looking into switching into maybe some sort of serverless deployment using Now, since um, Next.js is made by the same team that makes Now.sh. So I'm thinking about maybe switching to them that way. I don't worry. I have to worry about Kubernetes or anything like that. But um, that's definitely something I'm looking into. But what would you recommend? Would you recommend someone using a Docker image or maybe going the serverless route? Uh, it really, really depends. Like for me, I am not super experienced with the serverless route. I've always been a fan of, you know, just having that monolithic application where you just run it pretty much the same in dev or production. And, um, you know, it, once that stops working, then worry about it. But in a lot of cases, you know, if it's what you've been doing for a long time, like you can, you know, architect these things in such a way where you can get pretty far with that. Yeah, setup. I'm sure. So I, I know DigitalOcean itself is working on a. I think they have Kubernetes now, but I don't know if that's under the hood or if that's something you have to set up with your droplet. But that's also another option. But again, I feel like these things are going to come up once we start scaling. Um, and that's maybe a little far away for now. So so how does CapRover deal with like secret management, like, you know, your Sentry API keys and Shopify keys and stuff like that? Uh, so you, they actually have an app config. Um, so they, I think you can put in any sort of key value and it'll just like in your application, you would just do process.env dot whatever you have in your env file. So you, the env file is never uploaded to GitHub or anything like that. You simply add it on Caprover and then it uses that in production. Right, so very similar to how Heroku works. Exactly, I think they've essentially built the open source Heroku. That would be the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I've actually never really heard about it before, so I will be checking that out after the show just to see what it's about. Definitely. So, speaking of deployment, do you do you want to now get into like you know how exactly does code get from your dev box into you know the new release up and running in production? Yeah. So for now, it really is just a Git push. and Caprover, you essentially just connect it to your GitHub repository. Um, and then it automatically knows, I think it's a repo app. And so it knows, it just takes the changes and it starts building and it deploys it. But I'm also looking into maybe integrating with GitHub Actions um, to do a little bit of more testing. That's something that I'm definitely slacking on as far as unit testing and pushing it through some sort of continuous integration. But Maybe I should be looking into that soon. So how does that work then in dev? You kind of just run it locally, do a couple of manual tests to make sure things don't blow up immediately, and then yeah, you push it? exactly. For now, at least. Yeah. My, that can go pretty far, but yeah, automated tests definitely Yeah, I feel lot. like it's. Uh, I'm, I'm building up a lot of technical depth not doing it. And once it comes time to do it, it's going to be very difficult. But um, what would you recommend? What type of CI or CD do you use? Uh, CI, CD? It kind of depends like who I'm working for. So I, I'm mostly a freelance developer and sometimes these companies come at me and like they're already on AWS or, you know, they already have, uh, you know, GitLab or something like that. But uh, for me, for my own projects, I kind of like CircleCI. So it's one of those like independent ones, like it's not built into GitHub or GitLab, you know, so you can kind of just bring it wherever you want and uh, pretty easy to configure. Yeah, I honestly am not fully well worse as far as CI and CD. I mean, I understand what they do, um, but I definitely should try to 
going deeper and figure out how to integrate it and run these tests. And I think GitHub Actions open source like a lot of node functions and things of that sort. So that's what I was looking into. But um, I've heard great things about Circle CI, Travis CI, all those things. Yeah. So I think in your position though, like if you're okay with unsolicited advice would be like getting that automated test suite up and going and then worry about the CI after that. Oh, okay. Definitely. Because then it's like, you know, let's say you write whatever, you know, like 200 tests and you you now have this one command that you can run. You know, now that is something that you can build and run in your CI environment. Like every time you, you know, push a commit to like a feature branch or something like that. So it's a really nice way just to have like automated tests happen every time you commit and push code to, uh, you know, whatever mm-hmm. branch you'd like. Yeah, definitely. As far as tests, I think that's that's the part that kind of gets me because I feel like my main focus is just building the application and tests are such an important part. And so I have to look into this, definitely. That's the next step and something I've been thinking about. Yeah, and I wouldn't I wouldn't sweat about it too much. Like there's people in different camps. Like there's the TDD folks who like really, really, really like writing tests like before you even write the implementation of your code. And you're kind of just going back and forth in a loop until everything passes. But, uh, and that's totally cool, like very popular, very effective. But for me, I've always been kind of, um, I, I know I like to tinker. I like to write the code. I like to see the UI work. I like to see things come together. And then after I have an idea of how it works, then I kind of go back and start writing tests. So like I wouldn't code, you know, like a 50,000 line app with zero tests and then write, you know, tests for a month afterwards. But yeah, I'll, I'll chunk it out. Like, you know, maybe I'll develop for a couple of days worth of features and then be like, okay, you know, this is starting to come together. Let me write some tests for that. Because then it's now it's like, well, you know, if I want to refactor it later, like improve the code, you know, move things around. Now I have that test suite backing that. So it gives me way more confidence. Like to me, that's like the main benefit of writing yeah. tests. So would, would these, um, I guess, CI or CD tests differentiate from normal unit testing? Because I know like React has like the React testing library, uh, Cypress. I think there's enzyme like all these things out there so what were like the differences in the type of tests that you would run in a continuous integration versus unit testing as far as javascript uh literally everything you said library wise i have no idea what any of those are but the way the unit testing works is like you know let's say you have some unit tests or integration tests that you run locally on your computer the ci service or container that spins up to run these tests, you can kind of just think of it as like, you know, like a laptop in the cloud, like it's this brand new, you know, fresh container or fresh VM, if if you want to call it that, that just gets spun up. And now there's nothing on the system. And now it's up to you to, you know, do the steps necessary to get your system in a position to run those tests. So like if you're using Docker, then, you know, typically it's configuring your CI service to be like, hey, we're going to be using Docker basically like, you know, you just say that you depend on the Docker service and then you can just, you know, do your Docker compose build, which would, you know, build all your images and, or pull them down wherever you need to go. And then, um, yeah, then you can just run your unit tests. Like you would run them on your oh, computer. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. So it's basically taking the local tests and putting them for production before anything gets pushed to the, or pushed to production. Oh, yeah. Perfect. That makes sense. Yeah. So there's really, there's, yeah, there's not much difference other than now it's running on, you know, within the CI environment instead of your local box, but it's pretty cool because like your local box might be running, you know, Windows or Mac, but your production server is probably running Linux. And now your CI environment could all, could be running, you know, Linux as well. But if it's all containerized, it doesn't really matter that much. And with the Docker approach, it's kind of cool because it's like, you know, you can build your image on the CI environment, run all of your tests. And then if they pass, then you can have your, you know, Circle CI or whatever push those built images to your Docker registry, and then those could be pulled down in production. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that's definitely something I need to look into. Uh, I really do appreciate you telling me all this because now, now I see the value in all of this, and I feel like I won't see the negative effects on my application now since we don't have that many users. But it could go terribly wrong if we get an influx of users or if a lot of people are using it at once and we're not doing any sort of automated testing before production. Yeah, especially that your project is is partly open source. So imagine a new contributor is working on your project and they clone it and they, you know, mess around in their own dev box and they're like, hey, you know, I want to push this feature up to your project. It's like now having the CI environment in place allows their code that, 
you know, they're trying to merge into your project to be automatically tested instead of you having to like clone it and run it locally and do all this other oh, nonsense. Oh, yes, because whenever I go to issues sometimes, like a merge issue, um, you know, before they take the merge, I always see like, oh, all these tests were passed. Um, so you're right to really take significant contributions. I'm going to have to build out some sort of testing to make sure that the pull requests are tested before they get pushed and all those things. Yeah, for sure. So we kind of walked through like your whole deployment process. So now it's like, you know, up and running in production. Uh, how, how does things like database backups and other things like that happen? Like, what do you have set up? We don't have any sort of database backup set up. Um, but like I said, we just interact with Shopify's API. So Shopify is like the one source of truth. So, you know, if anything happens to us, if we go down, anything like that, all your information is, you know, all your order information is still in Shopify. And that's the main thing we interact with. So for now, we don't have any sort of, you know, database backing or anything like that. But it's something we will probably look into once we get more users or once we get the ball rolling a little bit. Right. So do you have any like other third party things doing like health checks to make sure the app is up and then you get reported if it's not? Uh, no, I have been looking into that. Um, something that just pings the website, you know, once a day or once every few hours and lets you know if it's still up or if it's still down. Um, but the thing is that I use it internally, um, extensively. I feel like I'm like the main user of it right now. So if it does go down, I'll, I'll know immediately. Um, and so I feel like I should maybe use some software as a service online that just pings it every few hours and checks all those things. Yeah. There, there's a couple of free ones out there. Yeah. Def I, I think I've definitely seen them. Um, but I just feel like if I'm using it, I'll know if it goes down or not, but something I'll look into. Yeah. The one I like is, uh, Uptime Robot. So they're not like a sponsor or anything. This is all just because I've been using them for years. But yeah, they, they ping your site every five minutes and they'll just shoot you an email if it happens to not respond with a 200. Wow. And it's completely free. 100% free. And I believe up to 20 or 50 domains. So, you know, if you're just running one site doing one check, then yeah, for sure it's going to oh, be yeah, free. I should definitely look into that then. I just assume that a lot of these have like a really low free tier, like, oh, we'll check once a day or once every two days. But if it's doing it that extensively, then I'll definitely sign up for that. Yeah, it's pretty cool because you can give it like a specific URL to test for. Because a lot of people, what they like to do, or at least what I like to do is, you know, I don't want to just load my homepage because the homepage might respond with like, you know, 50 kilobytes of HTML or in your case, like whatever, I don't know, uh, like an API details. So I just usually typically just have like, you know, like a slash healthy endpoint on my app that just returns like an empty body. So like the most minimum work possible. Oh, that's smart. Especially since it's free. Yeah. Can't really go wrong. It's like literally five minutes to set up. So we're getting towards the end of the show here. Uh, given what you've built, like what are some of your best tips and like lessons learned from building the Shopify app? Honestly, I think I, when I first started, it was, it just seemed so daunting, like all these things like the database and having like a server and another server on top of that and cores and all these different things. But I would recommend anyone just to jump into it. Like, I feel like people definitely downplay the ability to course correct. So my friend always told me that a bad decision beats indecision. So because we can fix bad decisions. We can course, you know, we can course correct the ship. We can make things better. So I would just say jump into it. There's so much documentation, so many people out there trying to help. You can even hire someone like I did um, if you are truly trying to build something. So I would recommend people just to jump into it. I all, you know, I want to say a year ago, I thought all of this was so daunting and an enigma, you know, like Docker, um, digital ocean, setting up a server, serverless all these different buzzwords and things, but I would just say jump into it and you'll adapt, you'll get better and you'll push out something that maybe people will want to use. Yeah, that's awesome advice. And I mean, you mentioned like you're, you've just been developing for a year and it's like you're dealing with like Apollo and all these like, yeah, 50 other buzzwords. Like the fact that you even got everything up and running is like really impressive oh, in itself. Because in the grand scheme of things in the developer world, like one year is like, it's practically yeah. nothing. I mean, I, I think about that sometimes. I'm like, you're right. It is practically nothing. But starting off, there's there's so, so much documentation and things out there. Like people want to help. I feel like there's sometimes like Google questions and there's someone asking that exact question, you know. So 
like someone's been where you are someone's probably been in that same predicament or same issue that you're having and people out there are trying to help you know to an extent but you're right you're in the developing world or development world is nothing not much yeah especially if you're starting from like really ground zero like no programming background like never made like even like a basic html page yeah there's so much yeah i mean fortunately i was i had since i had like these e-commerce websites i had like you know, experience in HTML and CSS. But yeah, like if I didn't have that, it, I feel like it'd be a lot harder. Um, but still, I feel like the barriers are coming down. It's getting easier and easier. I feel like React is very, very easy to code in. I remember when I was in school, I used to learn like Java and Python and R and those were not too complicated. But once you start coding in like React and Vue, then you realize that, oh, they've definitely made it easier. They've lowered the barrier of entry for all these people to come in and, you know, build something that they can use. Yeah, that's awesome. Because it, it really is like, you know, all these programming languages and tools, like they're kind of just a means to an end, right? It's a way for you to go from some idea in your head to having something cool that people can use or buy or whatever exactly. you're doing. Yeah, just building. I mean, just building things, I think, makes the world go round, you know? gives you fulfillment yeah. to some extent. Yeah, definitely. So, Junaid, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It was really, really nice yeah, having you on. Yeah, it was great. I feel like I learned a lot from you. Um, it made me rethink a lot of things that I've been working on and how I should go about those problems. And I hope I provide a lot of value to you as well. Yeah, no, you definitely did. And actually, this is the first episode where, you know, the guest of the show ended up asking me <laughs> a whole bunch of questions. I was not prepared yeah, for Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> I mean, I always feel like, Whenever you talk to someone, you should always always reciprocate, you know, because whoever you talk to, they, I, I think Bill Nye said this, but he said that every person you talk to knows something that you don't. And so if you just seek that out sometimes, you're, there's, you know, you talk to random people that are, you've worked on Docker, like I barely have experience with Docker and not to sound creepy, but I like looked into you and looked into the things you work on and you seem like a Docker expert. So as soon as I knew I was coming on here, I, I was going to ask you about Kubernetes and all these things. So I'm glad you were able to help me out. Yeah, no problem. So before I wrap this up, uh, do you have any links that you want to share? Maybe like a GitHub profile, Twitter account, things like that? Um, yeah, definitely. I'm actually not on social media that much, but you can definitely check out our website, uh, openship.org. Our repo is on there as well, but our repo is github.com slash openshiporg slash openship. Um, I can send you the links for Caprover um, and a couple of the things we talked about, like Prisma, Apollo Server, all those things as well, if you want to link that. Yeah, I'll put all those into the all show right, notes. Definitely. But yeah, those are the only two things we're on right now. We do have a Twitter, but honestly, I'm not very active on that. Um, I've just been focused on working on the application mainly. But the GitHub and our website are our main sources to get in touch. Cool. Thanks again, no Jimmy. You have a good one. You too. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.